worship leaders, worship musicians, and those who love to worship. Want to know what my number one problem with using multi-tracks in church is? The Great Commission. I can explain. Let's talk about it. Welcome to the Worship Homestead. My name is Nathan Smith. Thanks for joining me. Today, I want to talk about multi-tracks versus the Great Commission, and I promise this will make sense, but I do have to set the table a little bit. Before we get to that, I want to give you something. If you go to my website, blueprintsounds.com, you can get access to my free worship training bundle called Worship Booster Pack. It has resources on everything from live sound, how to arrange your band to sound their best, and how to songwrite for your local church. Again, all of that is available at my website, or click on the link nearby, blueprintsounds.com forward slash worship booster pack. All right, so let's talk about multi-tracks and the Great Commission. I should be clear, I'm not picking on multi-tracks per se. I'm picking on this whole ecosystem that I like to call the worship industrial complex. That's the megachurches, the record labels, the artists, the technology companies that support it, like Praise Charts, Multitracks, Planning Center, all of that, even the companies that make the musical instruments. They're all part of this industry, the worship industry, as we like to call it. And my big problem with it is the consolidation of power. So to set the stage, I want to read out of 1 Samuel. So in this part of the Bible, we're getting to the end of the era of the judges. Samuel was a prophet, and he was sort of the last judge, and his sons were no good. And so the people of Israel come to him and say, hey, your sons can't be trusted. They pervert justice. They take bribes. We need a king. We want to be like the other nations around us. Samuel goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. Give them what they want and warn them what's going to be coming if they actually do choose a king. So I pick it up in chapter 8, verse 8, but we're going to go through each section and talk about what happens when you pick a king. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king. I love that word procedure. It's the word verdict in Hebrew. This will be the verdict that you're speaking over yourself. This will be the verdict of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. So, in scripture, the family is the little kingdom, right? Every man, the head of his household, the man, the wife, the children, that's the the smallest, basically, association of society that we have, right? Well, what's going to happen? Samuel says, well, the Lord says through Samuel, If you choose a king, the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to take your sons out of your little kingdoms and use them as the building block for my big kingdom. Next, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. So this king needs an administration, and he's going to appoint people. So government's going to get more complicated, and they're going to, um, the plowing and the harvest, so the agriculture, but also the wealth of the land, and weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He is going to be thinking about expansion. And so everything that you had, well, he's taking that for his own purposes to build his kingdom. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. First he took your sons, 
Now he's taking your daughters. All of the building blocks of your family, of your little kingdom, are now going to be used for his kingdom. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. Ooh, now this guy is using your stuff and giving away your wealth as personal favors to his friends so that he can get what he wants. Does that sound familiar? He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. Ah, so because his government, his government is growing and his administration is growing, he's going to need your money to pay for his administration. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. So all of the things that you were going to use as building blocks to increase your own little kingdom, right? Your family, your initiative, your you know, free enterprise and your small business, well, that's going to him too. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Finally, not only is there the taxation going to get worse, but you yourself will come into his kingdom and be under his rulership. So instead of you having your own small business or your own little kingdom, even that's going to go away. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Finally, only at the very end will you realize this was a bad idea and the Lord will not answer you. The point is that God's government and man's government are opposed to one another. God's government gives life, spreads out authority, expands it, and man's government always, always consolidates power into fewer and fewer hands. Think about creation. When God makes the garden and he makes everything and he he sets Adam and Eve down in the middle of it, what does he say? He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Take the garden part of the world that I've given you as a blueprint and go make the rest of the world like this little garden that I gave you. He wants to expand authority, and he does that through having children and teaching them to do the same thing. Well, what happens when he destroys the earth in a flood? Well, he saves Noah and his family, and the first thing he tells them when they get off the boat is the same thing. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. He is wanting to push out authority. He's wanting to take the authority that he has and then make others rulers. He wants to make his children in charge of more and more. Well, what happens when man is in charge? We get the Tower of Babel. Everybody comes to one place and they gather under one ruler and they're building a tower to the sky. Yep. Well, what happens when Israel is asking for a king? The Lord knew that this would happen and he warned them exactly what happens when kings get in charge. They consolidate power. They take from other people and they use them as building blocks to make their own kingdom. It is the natural inclination for ambitious, selfish men to grasp at power, but they're given power by a majority that can't be bothered. Israel wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a king, and God warned them. He said, this is going to happen. Power will consolidate, and you will regret it. And they said, no, we want somebody to lead us out into battle. Contrast that with what Jesus does in the Great Commission. He's just risen from the dead. Here we are in Matthew 28, 18. And what does he say? And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here we see Jesus doing exactly what his Father did after creation, and that is giving away authority. All authority has been given to me, therefore, go and make disciples. You be little kings, just like I am the king, and go take this kingdom all over the earth. That's what he said to do. Take over the world, not for domination, but for dominion. That's what we're called to do. In God's way of governing, power is supposed to be expanded and multiplied, not consolidated. Let me give you another example from U.S. history. Alex de Tocqueville was a Frenchman who lived in the early 1800s, and he visited the United States and wrote down his reflections on the way that American government worked. It's called Democracy in America, published in 1831. Well, he had also been to England, so he had something to compare it to. French government, English government, and American government. And what he noticed was that American government was very diffuse. What I mean is, in France, it was one of the first countries to have a really national government. The word bureaucrat actually is a French word, and it refers to a bureau, which is a desk, which is where the government official would sit and do his work. So we get bureaucracy from France. Thanks, France. So let me read from Democracy in America so you can get a feel for what Alex de Tocqueville saw. Americans of all ages, all conditions, all minds constantly unite. Not only do they have commercial and industrial associations in which all take part, but they also have thousands of other kinds, religious, moral, grave, feudal, very general and very particular, immense and very small. Americans use associations to give fates, or parties, to found seminaries, to build inns, to raise churches, to distribute books, to send missionaries to the Antipodes. In this manner, they create hospitals, prisons, schools. Finally, if it is a question of bringing to light a truth or developing a sentiment with the support of a great example, they associate. Everywhere that, at the head of a new undertaking, you see the government in France and a great lord in England, count on it that you will perceive an association in the United States. In America, I encountered sorts of associations of which, I confess, I had no idea. And I often admire the infinite art with which the inhabitants of the United States manage to fix a common goal to the efforts of many men and to get them to advance to it freely. If I had to put all of Alex de Tocqueville's observations about American government into one sentence, it would be this sort of ethos. We should do something about that. In the 1830s, Americans said to themselves when they saw something that needed doing, we should do something about that. All right, so a man has an idea, well, hey, let's, let's paint the, the schoolhouse, it's getting tattered. Well, a man talks about it to a friend, and, and he thinks, yeah, if, if we can get a couple of guys that, that want to do this, I think we can just make it happen. We don't need to wait around for someone else to solve our problems. If I see a problem, I'm going to take res personal responsibility for fixing it. And he lived in a community where that was the norm, so he knew, well, if I can just lead a couple guys into getting things done, this isn't going to be a problem at all. It was a we should do something about that attitude. Unfortunately, nowadays, bureaucracy has won. The ethos of today, 2023, is someone should really do something about that. And that is a world of difference because now problems are increasingly being solved by the state or by the national government or not being solved by the national government or now being solved by 
international governments. Somebody else is in charge of solving our problems. Well, what do you think happens with that kind of mentality? Power consolidates, because ambitious men want more, and people that have a, well, I can't be bothered, somebody else should do something about it attitude, will naturally be ruled. Okay, so that's really big picture. Alex de Tocqueville, yeah, what does that have to do with worship on Sunday morning? Well, if you look at worship on a typical Sunday morning in a typical church in America, what do you see? You see people singing songs that they heard on the radio, following arrangements that someone else wrote, and you see them playing along with backing tracks that somebody else made and somebody else recorded. In essence, power has consolidated. Especially since COVID, I've seen this hollowing out of worship teams where you don't have a full complement of people. You don't have a bass player, a drummer, a guitar player, a keys player. You might have two or three of those pieces, and then what do they do? They just punch up the backing tracks to make up for what they don't have. It's really sad. And that's, that's a national trend. I believe we have become less musical as a nation. Fewer people take private lessons. Fewer people are, are playing musical instruments. And so I think that multitracks is actually a symptom, not a cause. Yes, we still want that great full sound, but a lot of churches just don't have the players. And so we're having to put band-aids in the shape of a multitrack on top of things. And it's like, well, okay, maybe people won't notice. Maybe people will still have a good time at worship, even though we don't have the players on stage anymore. But the problem, once again, is that power and authority is consolidated under a few people rather than being pushed out to more people. I hear so many stories about worship leaders who are burnt out, and I believe them, right? They have a lot to do. They have a lot of responsibility, which is not being shared by the community because there are fewer people to help. Worship teams have gotten so depleted that for some people, the multitracks are not an optional extra to fill out the sound. They're an absolute necessity because without them, there would be nothing. In short, we're in trouble. Power has become so consolidated at the top that the celebrities are leading the worship movement and all of the churches down below have lost their players and are relying on all of the resources from outside to give them what they need just to make it through another Sunday. How do you fix that? Well, it starts with personal responsibility combined with a long vision. We didn't just step into this problem. It just didn't happen because of COVID. This problem was decades in coming, right? It's time to start training up new leaders. So here's one idea. A typical multi-tracks subscription costs $60 a month to get access to their whole library of backing tracks. What if you took that $60 and said, we're going to retrofit one of our office rooms in the church and make it a studio for private lessons. And then we'll have some of our church musicians who know how to teach come in. So you could give three students half price lessons. The teacher gets $40 a lesson, you pay for 20 of it, and then the other 20 are paid by the kid or his or her parents. You keep that up for a year and see what kind of progress you get. If you can get a bass player or a guitar player or a keys player, somebody that could potentially, in a couple years' time, be on the rotation in your church service. Or let's say you build an association. Let's say you as a worship leader say, all right, I'm going to get together a couple of other worshipers from our church, and our goal is to write one song every three months that we share with our community. Just one in three months, that's pretty doable, especially with a group. You keep that up for a year, four songs. 
You keep that up for three years, 12 songs. Then at the end of that time, you say, all right, now our goal is to take our best songs that we've written together and let's make an album. Well, you learn a lot making an album, I can tell you, because the writing of the song is one thing, but once you've gotten to know the song pretty well, now you actually have to learn how to to mix it and produce it and distribute it. That's a different sort of challenge. After a couple of albums, your church has its own catalog of worship music that belongs to it, right? It, It has the design of the church, the heart of the congregation, the land that it was written on. Now that worship fits the church and you've grown your worship ministry because it becomes attractive. Things are happening. More people want to be involved. Those are just a couple of ways that you could grow a worship ministry rather than just subscribing to multi-tracks and needing resources from outside yourself. That's exactly what I'll be doing in the new year. Over the last five years, I've written a number of songs. I've got about 13 songs that I'm going to be putting on a new album, and I'm going to show you how I go through step-by-step recording drums, bass, guitar, vocals, all the rest of it, and then how I mix it and produce it to make it a full album. Whether it's teaching young people how to play a musical instrument, writing your own songs, or recording your own album, all of that is a we-should-do-something-about-this attitude, not a they should do something about this attitude. It's not enough just to complain about the worship industry and say, all the songs sound the same. Why are they doing that? They should do something else. It's not up to they. It's up to we. So I hope you're ready for 2024 because we're going to do a lot more. We should do something about this. It's time to take personal responsibility and get excited about doing your own thing, about creating your own music, rather than just getting resources from outside of you. Hey, I hope that video helps, and I hope that you're ready to make some new music in 2024. Until next week, God bless and goodbye.